Welcome to Some Days Today, where we encourage you to live your best life starting today. My name is Bola Adina, and I am the host. I will be joined shortly with my co-host, Mac Adina. He's actually walking in now. And um, joining us today is a woman cool. that I am um, excited to get to know more about. Her name is Dr. Issy Idemudia. Um, hopefully I'm saying that correctly. And, um, you know, Issy is an enterprise social solutions architect at Accenture with over a decade of experience in building and designing enterprise-wise solutions. Issy really stood out to me because of the book that I saw um, that she recently wrote, which is the best-selling book out of Africa and into the cloud, where she aims to empower the next generation of female coders. Um, she holds a PhD in technology management from the University of Port Harcourt, Nigeria, master's in information technology, and has a bachelor's degree in computer engineering. She's currently undergoing a second master's at Northeastern University in Boston, and where she's studying enterprise artificial intelligence. Welcome, Issy. That is quite a mouthful. Um, <laughs> I always get so impressive, impressed by folks who have all these computer engineering, computer science degrees. So um, it's really impressive to um, sort of chat with you today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I'm excited to be on your podcast today. So thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. So I know I did a bit of a background, um, but I'm pretty sure I didn't do exactly what you've done any justice. So um, if you could just give at a high level more about yourself, what you do. Um, and then, of course, during the course of the interview, I'd love to go back and sort of just revisit and walk through history with you. But just now, if you can just do a summary about what you do. Okay, so um, I'm an AWS um, solutions architect at Accenture. I've been at Accenture for just about two years um, as an associate manager at the moment. And pretty much I design, build, maintain solutions on Amazon Cloud for clients across several verticals. And I love what I do because I see, identify the mess and try to make that mess into a beautiful, sustainable, and scalable um, solution. So that's what I do on like my day to day. And um, in addition, I've been teaching girls to code um, in the last one year in Atlanta, Greater Atlanta area. Just empowering them. My passion is really to see the next generation of female coders. So. Before now, yeah, I went, I did a bachelor's degree in computer engineering, and then I went for a master's in information technology, and I went ahead and did my PhD in technology management. So really, I like to learn because I feel like learning is, is, so, is so much um, valuable to people. You, you know, people could take a lot of other assets from you. They could argue property, but no one can take away the knowledge you've learned. So that's my philosophy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's great. So um, I think you and I have quite a number of things um, in common. I'm also Nigerian. Um, yeah. And I, um, you know, also have a computer science degree. So I do have a bit of a, 
technology leaning, even though I wouldn't call myself a technologist. Um, I think since completing my computer science degree about 20 years ago, I haven't done as much in that space, but I think it's certainly um, sort of prepared me for my consulting career, which you and I also share in common, um, working at Accenture. So, um, so yeah, it, it's always interesting when you meet someone who has a similar background as yourself. So I'm very curious as to how we got here. Um, were you born in America or um, in Nigeria? I was born in Nigeria. I went to college in Nigeria. I got my PhD in Nigeria. Oh, wow. What's cool? I went to University of Potakot. That's where I did my doctorate in University of Potakot. I examined and investigated critical failure factors for software failure factors. Yes, for software projects in Nigeria. There was an alarming rate of failure of software projects, so I examined that. That was my PhD research. What does that mean, critical failure? I'm just, I'm just curious. You said there's an alarming rate. So does that mean as people are building softwares so, and um, release them to the market, th there are kinks and issues that they discover with the softwares? Yeah, so about 67% of the projects don't ever get into the market. They don't get into completion, so they fail even before it's launched. Um, so I examined these um, factors, and also the ones that eventually get into the market don't last. You know, software companies are going bankrupt. Um, everything is just, it wasn't just good statistics. So I looked at these factors with the aim of, you know, getting, getting it to, to work. Yeah, mm. to work. So okay. a few factors, um, a few factors that I discovered was, of course, a lot of stakeholder politics uh, was involved and then the right skill sets. Um, yeah, but it was a lot of people factors. Interesting. Interesting. I would love to dive into that um, some more because, and not, not now, because I do want to go even further back before we got to your PhD, but I've always been curious as to why um, India took off so quickly and so dramatically in the space of outsourcing, you know, when it comes to technology, because I, I felt like we had the same sort of skill set as India, you know, where, um, you know, on the other side of the world, where India is even, um, you know, further removed. But, you know, we have highly technical, capable people who are savvy with technology. So when America was looking to outsource technology, it was always curious to me as to why Nigeria was not sort of in the race. Um, so I'm curious to see if you have any insight in, into that, because um, maybe that explains um, <laughs> why so, yeah. so the, the, the politics in, within organizations is what is really not making it work um, because you will find out that a software project the project manager will be someone with a business degree who has never really managed a technology project from start to finish so the project is already doomed to fail because the structure the project team is wrong from, from the set goal so we'll have the, the technology people at the down cater in the project team where they can't make any decisions. They, they can't make cost decisions. So cost estimate goes wrong because the person leading the team doesn't understand what it takes for a full software life cycle to be delivered. Mm -hmm. um, so 
So that's, that's, I would say, I wouldn't say more than that, but around the stakeholder politics, I would say, what's the greatest correlation factor? Interesting. Gotcha. Hmm. So what, what gave you, what started this passion for um, programming to begin with? Oh, so I'll say when I finished high school, um, when I wanted to be an architect, but like a structural architect. Mm-hmm. And that was because I had this aunt who was an architect. She was a lecturer at the University of Nigeria in Suka. And my, she was like my favorite, uh, my dad's favorite um, niece. And he always spoke about her a lot. So she was like our go-to aunt. So I wanted to be an architect, but I, I didn't quite make the grades that I needed to get into architecture at Nsuka. So my second choice was River State University of Science and Technology, where um, they accepted me to go into computer engineering. So it wasn't like there was any critical thinking before I chose computer engineering. I didn't just want to do what my other female friends were doing. So like, I didn't want to do social sciences. I didn't want to do business. I didn't want to do the things that were common for girls. So... I went into, I just chose computer engineering. Got it. Interesting. So um, let me ask you, this is, and you know, I don't know if we want to jump into this right now, but this is what's burning in my mind because, you know, you talked about doing the research for, you know, um, what goes wrong, the critical, um, what do you call it? Critical critical defects? Failures. Yes. And so I'm wondering you know, a lot of Nigerians do have the brain power, like we talk about with respect to the comparison between Nigeria and in, in, um, India. In India, but a lot of them are abroad using their, um, you know, their, their mental powers and their mental resources, as opposed to being at home, helping them solve some of the very problems that you identified. So why not go back and help to fix it, those sorts of things? So, I mean, helping to fix it doesn't mean that you have to be there uh, presently. You know, you don't have to be present to to, uh, to help to fix it. So we are doing what we can. Um, so like uh, the beginning of the lockdown, I, I had a session, a data science session with a group called Data Science Nigeria. I think that's the largest group in Africa focused just on data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence. And I, I taught the three-day session. So that's also helping, <laughs> even though I'm not there, like, physically. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. So I'm curious as to how um, you decided that you didn't want to do what was common. Because I think it sounds like there may be something here about the personality type that decides to go against um, the norm. You know, and I, and I wonder, has this always been you? Because I feel like I kind of have that in me as well. Everybody is doing one thing. I'm like, okay, well, it seems a little crowded. You know, how can I stand out? So have you, has that always been your personality or a characteristic of yours from a very young age? Yeah, I've always wanted to stand out. Um, I don't like to follow the crowd because I feel where the crowd is, there's, maybe a lot of competition there but if you go around to where the, the road less traveled right there's a few fewer people and I feel that the fewer people are more 
quali quality people, you could make strong relationships, strong friendships. Um, I mentioned in my book, the friends I made when I was in college are still like my great, good friends today. Some of them running their tech consulting businesses, some in IBM, Microsoft, and all of that. And we've been doing great things. So on, on that, um, you mentioned, you know, you have friends who are running their own tech companies. Why not start your own? I feel I'm ready. I, I don't know if I can run a business. Hmm. I think I just want to build my career at Accenture for now. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> and I, I'm sorry, I know you probably um, discussed this, and I apologize in advance, but how long have you been at Accenture? Two years. Oh, okay, two years. And how did you land in Accenture? So I applied, and I got an offer in four days. While wow. in Nigeria? No, in the U.S. Okay, so you, so you were working here before Accenture? Right. Okay. All right, so um, may I ask what the previous employer, who the previous employer was? So uh, I was working at a very small consulting, um, consulting firm, which was mine. I was the managing partner of the IT consulting firm. I ran it for about three years before I joined Accenture. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, I, like I said, I do want to explore more of your background. So you've always liked to stand out. You decided you were going to do computer science. Were you always, or computer engineering, were you always um, good in math, which I feel like was a prerequisite, if I remember correctly, like you had to be good in math. But what else, what else did you feel set you up for that path? Yeah. So I, I, I loved maths. I still love maths for the WIAC, that's the West African examination. I did, I took um, the maths exam. I took the further maths exam. That's the advanced maths exam. Yeah, just to show how much I loved it. And I had A's, I had A's in those courses. So I love maths, I love physics, I love chemistry. And I think that really put me in a strong um, position to get into computer engineering and, and to be successful. Well, I, I, I'm not saying right now that in order to be successful in coding or computers, you have to love math. I think the passion really to be successful is what makes you successful. Mm -hmm. so, so how did you find it? So personally, I was okay in math. Um, I kind of stumbled my way into the technology side, computer science, because back then I didn't have a strong passion for anything. This was 1998 when I started college. I didn't have a strong passion per se. Um, and my dad is like, I don't know, computers seem like they may be important. You may want to study that. So I said, okay, well, nothing else to study. I don't have a passion for anything. I knew for a fact I didn't want to be in the hospitals. I didn't want to be a doctor. Yeah. I knew I didn't like accounting. I yeah. knew I was, I actually went in as a pre-law. I met Mac, my husband, in law, I mean, in, in undergrad. So he was a pre-law. I went in as a pre-law. But before you can go into law school, you have to major in something. So I figured I would just major in one thing and then I'll become an attorney or a lawyer of some sort. Um, of course, later um, in my college career, 
I took one law class. No, no, I saw the books Mac was carrying around, the massive books, and I said, that's not for me. So, so for me, really, computer science was something that I stumbled into, and I didn't feel like I thrived in it. Does that make sense? So even though it, it, I was looking for something interesting, something different, um, it was it was so different because I didn't have any exposure or background into it that I kind of really struggled. So I'm curious, had you been pre-exposed um, to computer engineering? Like, did you have a sense for it so you knew what to expect and then therefore thrived? Or did you just pick it up as you got into it? That's a very good question. I would say I also stumbled into it the same way you did. But you see, when I got into my first year of college, I realized that there were no computers. And I was studying computer engineering. And then I knew oh, something. Hold up. One second. Yes. So you were studying computer engineering at college, but there were no computers at the college. In my first year, there, there, were, there were no computers. But my second year, we had one computer for the entire, oh. for the entire department. So when there was 150 of us in my class, and I said all of this in my book, there was 150 of us in my set, and 150 of us had to use one computer. So we took turns and it was, it was hard. We took turns. You needed to, you, you, you write your code down on the sheet of paper. And then you just have your time slot to type in the code. At, it better runs. Like your code needs to run because once your time is up, it's up. Yeah. So it put a lot of precision into my coding skills because the code will run on paper first before it goes to the computer. Um, but I wasn't, I felt there was more. I felt I could, I could get more. I felt computers had more to offer. So that's when I started looking for other places. And then I came to, I came in contact with an institution called NIIT. It was run by Indians and it's still run by Indians uh, in, in, in Portacot. And I enrolled with um for microsoft sql server that was my first course i enrolled in my second year so i started taking classes at nit and also at my college so and then when i go to nit i saw well over 1000 computers and everyone had access you have you know one person to one computer it was one-to-one and then that was where my love for computers really began because mm. I met people who were doing great with computer. Um, the, the hiring managers were coming there to hire because that was like the hub for the smart technology people or the skilled technology people. And I happened to hang around very smart people who were doing different things. We had people doing Java, PHP, Oracle. So I finished my Microsoft Database Administration and then I enrolled for Oracle Database Administration. I got certified. So but by, by the time I graduated from college, I was already a Microsoft database administrator. I was an Oracle database administrator, as well as my computer engineering degree. And within mm -hmm. that time frame, so even while I was going to school, my perception about computers was completely different from my classmates. Because while they were lining up to take turns to use that one computer, I had access to one computer myself and I was doing a lot of that. I started lecturing, they offered me a job. So I was taking weekend classes, teaching 
um, Microsoft SQL and Oracle SQL as well. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's cool. So what were some of the solutions, especially living in Nigeria? Um, because I think that is one thing that the world of technology opens up is the ability to resolve a lot of um, issues that you see in the day-to-day -day world. Um, so I do appreciate that um, experience for you know the world that it opened up for me. What were some of the issues that you living in Nigeria started to think could be solved through technology and that you were now wanting to attach yourself to? So I would say payments on the banking sector. Um, I still don't understand why we don't why we don't have like mobile monies and wallets like here how we have Cash App and PayPal still doesn't function in Nigeria. But I need to build local our local PayPal. I know we have the skill set and capacity to do it. In order to do it, you need to get a CBN. Um, monetary license uh, and when you go to CBN it, it becomes almost complicated because it's, it's, it's not political and the licensing fees and all of, all of those kind of things but payments is something that I was really concerned about and I'm still concerned about I know we've had very few successes we now have Flutterwave that's run by a friend of mine and then the the Diamond Bank CEO after the merger, I know he started something around um, wallets, but just to be able to reach um, the unbanked mm -hmm. because they can go to the bank. Yeah. So, we jump into the book or are we still background? Yeah, yeah. So now, I mean, I'm just curious as to then from there. So once you were done, you thrived, you got your degree, you started teaching. And then what happened after that? How did you find your way either into um, the venture space, which I saw on your resume, and then of course, eventually to America? Yeah. So after that, I worked for the Nigerian government for a bit. I managed the database of all Nigerian teachers. Funny enough, there's actually an Oracle database of all- Nigerian teachers? Registered Nigerian teachers, so. Hmm. And what, is that, what, what is that used for? What's the purpose of that? Yeah, so it's regulatory to make sure that what you teach, you have a proper background check and you're teaching with the right certificates. Um, then they have their own internal licensing. So like how med the doctors get their medical license, you actually get a teacher's license before you can teach. So I, I just managed the database for that for a while. And while I was doing that... Um, Someone introduced me to the CEO of um, Venture Garden Group. Mm -hmm. And so they needed someone to manage their government relations. So I was actually, because I, I had the experience with government and they were doing quite a bit in the government space, they were doing, they had solutions that they were selling to the government. So solutions in healthcare, aviation, financial services. So I managed their relationship with the Nigerian government. That was what I did for Venture Garden Group. It was after Venture Garden Group that I, I moved to the U.S. Gotcha. How was that experience? Because in, in what I'll, you know, you mentioned the politics within CBN and then, of course, having, um, you know, working, doing government relations. I can't imagine that it was a walk in the park, mainly because my dad 
who has been um, a chemist here all of his career, left to go start a, um, a pharmaceutical plant in Nigeria, you know, making um, medicine and all of that, something that he's very passionate about. Um, this was 10 years ago. He is still waiting for various licenses that these people continue to tell him he needs. They'll come visit the, the plant and then something else will be revealed. And then it's more money, more bribes. So I just, so when you talked about the politics and the things that really um, inhibit growth and progress and innovation, to me, it seems to be primarily because of the politics and, um, you know, some of the political, um, you know, randomness. So how was that experience for you? I would say I was just kind of fortunate because the company I work, worked for at the time had some good political, um, I want to say, backing mm-hmm. and connection. So what would have taken a few years to just a few months. Mm-hmm. Very good. You know, so another thing that we didn't mention um, so Bola and I, we started, or we started a, a company called Profax. Mm-hmm. And so the idea behind Profax was, you know, we would start off, it was just kind of, kind of like a LinkedIn, you know, where people would volunteer their own information. But then when you wanted to get hired, the employers, or if you were looking to put your information, like, for example, you're um, trying to go to school in the U.S., you know, how they have um, the West African, the, the one that you just talked about, WIAC, because mm-hmm. I know that we were trying to um, uh, work with them as well to get information over. So the idea was we would um, verify the information. Uh, so if you had a verified profile, whoa, you know, you could then say, okay, check out my profile on you know, profax. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I remember part of the, you know, that's trying to start off was just basically doing what WIAC does, which is essentially going to the various different schools and trying to see if you can get like a certified transcript and that sort of thing. And, it, and that was a hassle as well. But I mentioned this to say, because obviously you work with data and that was the biggest reason for us to try to do that was to try to collect data um you know the way i understand things you know there's a ton of things that's at issue but part of um you know any kind of developing country's need i think is proper um record keeping and documentation because for multiple reasons obviously you can you know if you know exactly what to do you can build institutional knowledge and all that sort of thing so that's why i think data Mm-hmm. is um, absolutely critical. And, um, you know, having managed the database of uh, teachers, and I know that at some point they were also trying to do like this identity management, at least in Lagos. Yes, um, the NIL, yeah, National yeah. Identity yeah. Management. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I, I'm curious as to your opinions on how that's proceeding and how, you know, not just the political issues, but also maybe some technological, um, you know, obstacles towards building the kind of database that is going to help to facilitate mm-hmm. interactions between different people and different organizations and things like that. I think the challenge is that we wanna we wanna collect data in a big big bang methodology. It's two hundred million people. My approach will be start with Lagos, then go to Kano, and then do Port Harcourt. Because when you do one state, you have lessons learned, 
and then you can correct and then go on to another state. When you want to do it a national, as a national um, project, it doesn't work. And then at a point, people feel overwhelmed. They feel like there's no success. And then we drop it halfway. The LAMC is a great, it's a great initiative. It's supposed to be like our social security here in the U.S. Um, I mean, I have my own card, but I would say the most current database we have in Nigeria is the BVN. And then from the telcos. The what is that BVN? BVN is the beneficiary verification number. Oh, bank, yeah. Bank, like that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Pension number. Yeah. No, bank verification number. So what happened in the early 2000s mm-hmm. is that you now have to, before, before your account is verified, you now have to go and do biometrics. So you take your mm-hmm. timeframes and then you put in everything and then you're able to link all of your bank accounts. So even if you have 200 bank accounts in, in Nigeria, all of them are now seen with one connecting. So everyone has that BVN number. And that was a way to kind of eliminate fraud because when we say Dr. EC, we know how much you have in your total account. Mm. And then we, we realized that some people didn't show up to identify to identify with an account because people were opening accounts with their driver's name, with their, you know, with their maid's name and all of that. So now your maid has to show up to identify herself as the owner of the account. And then you don't want your maid because if your maid goes in and puts her thumbprint, that money is hers. Yeah. 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 So a lot of money was now left idle. Um, in the bonds. Yeah, but I mean, that was a great, great move. And I think that's why now in the US, I know I have friends who have come visiting. When they, they just ask them here from Nigeria, can we, do you have any debit card from Nigeria? And they take it as a form of identification. Because I think Nigeria mm-hmm. is the only country whose banking details is authenticated by biometrics. Even in the US, mm-hmm. you don't have biometrics in your bank. No, right, no, right, right. no, yeah. yeah. Well, nowadays, I would imagine it would just be your phones because everybody is now using eyelids and their um, fingerprints to open their phones and that sort of thing. But yeah, I remember when that was started because that was one of the ideas that we actually also had. But um, yeah, it's interesting how that that movement, yeah, is, yeah. is happening. Yeah. So what, what, what was, um, so I was going to say, I, you know, because I'm really interested in getting into the contents of your book. And to me, I think, um, you know, when you have the background in the venture space, which you have coupled with IT, coupled with the government, you know, you're now starting to see how solutions can come together from different angles, you know. So I guess, um, you know, what are you thinking could be, aside from you know, the, the politics, which you mentioned earlier, you know, and also sort of taking um, a bite-sized approach to solving issues, which I think could be applied in general to all of life, you know, so I am interested to also hear about the lessons that you've pulled from your history and how you've applied it to other aspects of your life. But speaking of Nigeria, though, I guess I'm just curious, 
you know, when you think about moving forward, you know, what are some of the um, infrastructure or the, the, the solutions that could be driven from your experience that perhaps is not currently being explored? I think you mentioned something around, um, what was it, the... Um, Mobile wallets? Yeah, yeah, the payments earlier. Mm -hmm. But I feel like a lot of um, a lot of IT or technology or venture um, um, horsepower is currently being dedicated to that. I don't know if it's been solved, but you know, when I was studying the venture space, it just seems as if there, there were lots of solutions around payments. And I just wonder, it seems to me as if there are lots of other things <laughs> that could be addressed. So I'm not sure if it's a lack of infrastructure that's an issue. Maybe it's just because the payment, you know, because of BDM, you know, there's already so much infrastructure built. So it's like, we might as well all um, pile onto here. But I guess I'm just curious, like what other major areas need to be addressed and what would be your ideas as to how to go about resolving them? Yeah, there's many, many things that can be done. Waste, um, there's a mm -hmm. lot of technologies around convert. We have waste on the streets. We shouldn't. The waste should be collected and turned to energy. Mm -hmm. And that's technology that's readily available. The challenge is that if we have, if we convert it to energy and then there's now light everywhere, what happens to the generators and importers of the generator? So that's a topic for another day. But waste is, waste is an area where I see there's going to be like ripple economic impact. Um, mm -hmm. Once there's light, the country would not be the same. Like people, Nigerians are generally very innovative. See how we've survived in so much torture. How much more when the basic infrastructure is provided, such as light? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's yeah. been a huge technology boom. So we have in Lagos, that's what we call the Yaba Valley, just like we have the Silicon Valley. It's a, val mm -hmm. it's a technology valley in Yaba. Yaba is in Lagos. And that's where we have, there's a, there's a tech school called Andela. And when Facebook came to Nigeria a few years ago, uh, that was where he visited. I know that um, software skills are being outsourced to Microsoft, IBM, and all of those guys from Andela. So we're making okay. Yes. Very oh, good. cool. So then, yeah, how um, did you then come about where you are now, you know, your current space, and how did you decide to write a book, and what was that process? Yeah, so at Accenture, they started this, initiative called Women in Cloud. Apparently, the, the woman who wrote my forward is Annette Ripper. She used to be, so in 2018, she used to head all of technology in North America. And we were at this conference where the AWS conference in December, December of 2018, and she didn't see a lot of women at the conference from Accenture. She was like, oh, she didn't like that. We needed to do something about it. And that was where it all started. So a lady at my, uh, my practice at Accenture started the initiative called AWS Women in Cloud. And it was just to see more women um, get AWS certified and work with AWS Cloud. 
So I joined and they were looking for ambassadors. So I joined the team and very shortly they made me the, to lead um, the community engagement because I was very active in the community, going out to identify organizations that we could partner with. So I was doing quite a bit uh, in the community and then they made me the head of the community engagements part of that initiative. So within that, I've worked with Girls Who Code, Black Girls Code, um, there's the Youth for Change, um, just several organizations like that, um, teaching girls how to code, bringing them into the Atlanta Innovation Hub, just to give them uh, exposure and to see that there are women working um, in technology at Accenture to give them inspiration and then I still teach them how to code on Amazon Cloud. I, we build a few things with Amazon Cloud. So um, while I was doing that, um, I got an email saying, oh, you see, we're doing the series on women in cloud, and we would like to hear your story. And I'm like, okay. So this was in 2019, like July. And then this, uh, scheduled an interview with a writer at Accenture. And we had a one-hour session where I talked about my story real brief, briefly. And in October of 2019, they published a blog post. And it was out of Africa and into the cloud. I was like, oh, my God. And I read the blog post. I didn't even believe it was me. And But I think that was the starting point because I got a lot of feedback and over 500 what do you mean it was you what was it what was um what what was it about the blog that made you yeah, so everything we talked talked about you know how I read computer and then I got doctorate and then I'm at Accenture and what I do at Accenture so that was just mm-hmm. it was just a short blog post what I do at Accenture but it just the, the blog post was just to highlight women in cloud gotcha. so they've been doing series and then they just said they wanted to hear a story as well i remember that conversation with a writer when i told him i went to college in nigeria he said you sorry what did you say i said i went to i went computer engineering in nigeria i was like really so he didn't even know but it brought a lot of perspective because they went and did their own research and then when i read the article you mentioned Yabel Valley. You mentioned that there's 230-something university. So they did their own research. And the, the, the blog post was really good. So <laughs> it was really good. So I got a lot of feedback. People within Accenture reached out to me and said, oh, my God, that's an amazing story. And it was just, what, maybe 400, 500 words or 1,000 words maybe. You know, it was a short blog post. But the feedback was great. And a lot of people told me, if you wrote a book, I'll buy it. If you wrote a book, if you wrote a book, I'll buy it. So I was like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> the words about your story that got people so fascinated? Was it um, you being a woman? Was it the fact that you are a Nigerian woman? Was it your passion for technology? Like what, or just something amazing about your passion for, for all of it? Like what, what was it that you think stood out to people? People. So first of all, they couldn't make this correlation between a Nigerian woman and teaching. 
American kids. I think mm. that, 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 that it, it was interesting to understand the correlation between those two um, independent variables. <laughs> as I was, as I was, well, that's an interesting concept because you're saying a lot of times it's the other way around, right? Yeah. It's um, Americans who are going to Africa teaching African children about whatever the latest thing is. So, so it's now the reverse that's happening, which then showed things in a different light. Correct, correct. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just that I was teaching black kids, I was just teaching girls, like all girls, yeah. you, you know? And I just really wanted to, my motivation, I guess, was to see more women on the, on the table on the project teams. I've been at project teams where I'm the only woman and I don't like it. Uh, I, I, whatever I have to do to make, make it different, uh, I would do it. I have two daughters and if what I'm doing is gonna help so that when they, when they get into corporate America or into corporate business world, they would also see more women at the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I, you know, I'm watching this, I like what I'm hearing, you know, and I also have two daughters and I'm like, I know I want them to um, get into this. Tell me why I should buy the book and what my daughters would um, get from it. Okay, so you should buy the book because, uh, one, we all have fears. And as a girl, I was afraid. I remember my first year in college, was fair because on the corridor there are all boys and even in the workplace there are all guys so I addressed I identified all of those fears and fears that people don't talk about I talked about it so fear of the unknown fear of uh, unacceptance and fear of failure those are mm. three those are three fears that limit us as girls um, to get into technology. So I, I spoke about them and how I f- felt them and how I overcome them. So I think there's something every girl needs to read and see. <laughs> it's so interesting. I'm, I, I appreciate that you answered the question that way because I, um, you know, I wanted to ask you specifically about um, the fear because one of the questions that you answered from, um, you know, our, pre-interview questions is um, the hardest part about starting business or living for yourself. And you said, you know, seeing the end was the hardest part, the fear of the unknown, fear of non-acceptance. And, you know, um, a big part of what we do at, um, you know, at um, some days today, (laughs) I'm just thinking about uh, what I want to ask you, but a big part of what we do is, you know, talking about those fears, being real, being open and honest and everything. And so that's, that's deep because a lot of times people need to know that they're not alone, that other people share those fears as well. So that it's okay to keep, like, cause a lot of times people will see someone like you and think, you know, what they've never had a fear in their lives. And so if you can, I, you know, see somebody else who's made it and had those fears is very important. So can you um, tell us a little bit about those fears and how you, what you did to overcome them? Yeah, so 
uh, the fear of failure, I'll just um, speak around that. The reason why I didn't get into architecture, like the structure of architecture, was because I, I didn't make enough grades to get in. So mm-hmm. I had, so we, we feel this failure, fear of failure from failures of the past. So mm-hmm. I want every girl to know that even though you had failed in the past, the current situation you're in is completely different. So analyze the fears as independent, independent issues or independent situations and deal with it. So we carry on past fears and then we bring it into our present life and then we keep moving along with it and it prevents us from living our best life. So my mm-hmm. advice is to drop it, drop whatever had happened and face it now. And then failure in itself is not a bad thing. Look at me. I would have been a terrible structural engineer. Don't you think so? <laughs> you don't know that. How do you know that? With all of, okay, look at with COVID-19, nobody's building no buildings, but everyone is in <laughs> <laughs> but everyone, everyone right now is on the computer. Everyone is moving to cloud. So I'm having a great time of my life. So, yeah. so, so you can work from anywhere. You'll be traveling. Correct. Living a great life. <laughs> so it wasn't. So so it wasn't failure. It's my point. Yeah. So failure isn't Correct. Sometimes yeah. failure is just a way of redirecting you to where you're meant to be. So take it mm. as that and move on. It's just an event. It's just an event and you move on. Yeah. And is this something that you've always known or did you have to like grow and mature to this space and kind of talk about that within the context of writing a book, you know, because, you know, there's some things that maybe you know and some fears that you feel like you've conquered but not everyone can, or not everyone feels comfortable jumping into the process of writing a book. That's very unfamiliar. So what were, how did that fear show up during the writing process and how did you sort of overcome it? So because somewhere in my mind, I feel like I'm an achiever. I, <laughs> starting off was great. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna write this book. Because when I, when I meet with these girls and I talk with them an hour or two, I leave them. Uh, but I want to be able to leave them with a last thing, with something that they can go back to. You see what I mean? So all of that sounded nice and fancy. And then I started. But it was maybe like chapter three. I was like, no, this is, this is crap. This is not going to work out. This is... But... I had an accountability partner uh, because mm-hmm. I had registered in a self-publishing school that walked me through the process of self-publishing. And everyone is assigned a partner. Everyone is assigned a coach. So mm-hmm. they hold you accountable through the process. So there was no way to, there was no way to, back, to back off. They're like, no, mm-hmm. you're on course. Don't. So they always taught us, don't look back. When you're writing... Don't go back. You have done with chapter one. Don't go back yet. 
finish the entire book. And mm-hmm. it's interesting how it also relates to life itself. You know, mm-hmm. going to my coach who I would say, you finish the book. When you finish the book, then you hand it over to an editor who now goes through the, you know, the correlation, how the flow works, and then the punctuation and all of that. Because if you keep looking back, you're going to edit, clean, correct, and you're never going to finish. You're never going to move forward. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. So that was yeah. how I finished. That was how I finished. My, in 60 days, I was done writing. And then wow. 30 days um, for the editor to, to do it. And I spoke my book. That's another thing. I didn't, I didn't write my book. I could write, write. I spoke yeah, it. I used Google Assistant and mm-hmm. it was, yeah, it was super easy because it translates speech to, to, to text. And yeah. I blocked out an hour every day on my calendar. Like it was on my calendar writing. Uh, wow. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> All these things, because I mean, I think, um, you know, there are a lot of people who probably want to get to writing. And I think a couple of things. One is procrastination is real. Everybody's like, it's in their heads. It's like, oh my God, all the work that I have to do to get this done. Mm-hmm. But like what you are describing, not only in having somebody there as an accountability partner, because then you have to do something. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that, uh, you know, people don't like, if you don't have anyone there pushing you, you probably don't do anything. But also the idea of, no, you you could just speak it. Like mm-hmm. you can just talk it. Because what's in your head? Happen is like it's like you're telling your story because everyone's life happened mm-hmm. to you the way it happened to bless someone else, to be a message to someone else, to inspire someone else who is going through what you've been through. So yeah. it's a message, right? And then the same way you're just telling your story to your husband or your wife or to your friend, it's the same way you're just going to be talking to. You. Google Assistant, you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. You just talk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. And then you said the, the process of writing then sort of relates to life. So how, how did that reveal itself? Um, and how have you been pulling from that process to all your future aspirations now? So I, I think really the writing process allowed me the opportunity to, to look deep, even these fears I spoke about, I didn't know, I, mean, I didn't know that, I, I knew that I had fears, but I didn't know it the way I know now. But mm-hmm. writing it allowed me to go real deep and find out what were the real issues, mm-hmm. you know? Like, oh my God, so that was it. Oh, so that was it, this was it. So it's, it's been like therapy for me as well. And, yeah. uh, and so it's, it's, it's a healing process for, for everyone, you know. So it's going to help you to heal. And it'll help you also apply those um, principles that you've lived by to document your principles that you've actually lived by so that mm. you continue where you had successes and you take them and you move them forward. And then the principle of not going back to, to your writing, you know, until you finish. That, that's actually a lie because if you keep looking back, 
you're not going to you're not going to make any progress in life yeah. at all yeah. yeah no that's amazing i um you know a lot of times people say we were just talking about this today you know how do you live in the moment um when you are trying to plan for the future and you know we were debating well if you're living in the moment then are you always going to be unprepared for the future because there's got to be some sort of planning but writing is something that does force you to stay in the moment and it sounds like what you're saying is you're definitely not looking back but then are you still preoccupied with the future or how do you force yourself to occupy that present moment knowing that you want a cohesive book which requires some sort of planning how does that all translate uh, and then with COVID, you can imagine I was home with my daughters, trying, yeah. trying to homeschool, uh, just crazy. But definitely some level of planning. So like I said, I put it, I put it on my calendar. It was on my, uh, set an alarm, alarm would go off at 7 a.m. every day. And it went off like that for 90 days. So I planned mm-hmm. 90 days in future, you know. To, to ensure that um, it got done. Um, and then also, I mean, the only thing you want to learn from your past is just um, the things that have worked for you. You should be able to document what has worked for you because mm. it will come handy um, as well in the future. And then in the present, I would say it's just to be a blessing to people, um, be kind. Um, to people that you come across, um, be kind to yourself as well, because you've done an amazing, incredible job <laughs> to to get to this point. Um, mm. Be kind to yourself, be easy on yourself. So do you believe, you feel like everybody has done an amazing job and everybody needs some sort of kindness? <laughs> is, is that um, your philosophy? Because I think a lot of people do, a lot of people beat, them, beat up on themselves. A lot of people cannot see what they've done. A lot of people hold on to the fear. So how do you, and you know, maybe you address in this in, in the book, how do you sort of speak to in the intrinsic value that everyone has and the fact that, you know, you are is um, reason enough for you to celebrate? Like, how do you bring that into people's full understanding? Um, people, I would say, I, I know for sure that everyone has done something great. Um, There's just a process of sitting still and identifying it. Like like when I wrote wrote my book, it really allowed me to see to see my journey and to see where where I have helped people and how I am helping people and how I'm being kind and how. I mean, I, I, it was, at this point, I had to sit down to count how many girls I had taught to code. I didn't know. I was just doing it. You know how you're just busy moving on and on and on. But when I saw the number, it really hit me. I was like, okay, I'm mm. doing good. You know, mm-hmm. I'm really doing something good. So we all just need to, even in the present, just pause and take stock of, of mm-hmm. where we've been good. Nobody's perfect, but... Definitely, mm-hmm. if you stop and take take stock, you will find out where you've been good. Mm. Yeah. That's great. So I know that you probably didn't see yourself here um, when you started off in, in um, you know, architectural school. I was going to say, you mean on some days today. 
when you when you started off in architectural school, you didn't see yourself. She didn't go to architectural school. I know. Okay. On her journey. On her journey. Okay. To go to architectural school, obviously she was redirected. Yes. And now she went into coding, and that's because she never saw herself here. Here. And now being an author. Yes. And so you know, this is kind of unexpected, but you landed where you were supposed to be. Where now are you, do you see yourself? Do you have a, a vision? Whether or not, it, you know, you're redirected further, but do you have a vision for what you want to do now that you started writing this book and how you want to impact the world? So, yeah, I, I've looked at the reviews of my book and I'm like, oh my God, I have almost 60 reviews um, in, in, a lot, in what, three weeks? And everyone is just saying, oh, how you've inspired me the book has been inspiring now i'm going to take that certification i've someone say i've been planning to take certification for 10 years now i'm going to take it now i've been afraid all of these fears you mentioned have been afraid and now i know that in fact a friend of mine said no you see stop it you've never been afraid when we were in college you were taking classes in college you were going to nit just stop it you've never been afraid live here for people like us that do like no we all have fears yeah so i think where i see myself going so like this summer my calendar is really booked a lot of organizations women groups girls group want me to come and speak on the issues in my book so I really see myself doing that long term, um, inspiring and encouraging girls and women across the globe. That's awesome. great. That's great. Yeah. yeah. It looks like um, you're doing an amazing job. Congrats on the book and the fact that you got Annette Ripper. And what is her title at Accenture? Uh, yeah. So right now she's the global, like global chief <laughs> executive of Accenture wow. Strategy and Consulting. Yeah. yeah. And I remember I, I had fears of reaching out to her to write a book. Um, I, I just sent an email. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so you so just you sent her an email and said, would you be interested in writing my forward? Does she know you? No. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, we've been on a couple of emails. She, she, she sent me messages, uh, like just email about the work I'm doing with girls. So to, yeah. to, that, to that extent, you know what I mean? But it's not like we've met um, physically before. We haven't. Uh, yeah, so I wrote the email and it took her a while to respond. And you can imagine uh, what, because of COVID and then Accenture was going through a reorg. Um, it was part of that reorg that made her the, on the global like I said, she used to be North America lead for technology, but now she's the group chief executive of Accenture Strategy. So they're in the middle of the reorg and then COVID and having to do with all of that. So it took her a while to respond. Well, she eventually did. And she was like, okay, send me the manuscript. I sent it over and then she read it and she was like, yes, I'll do it. This is fantastic. Wow. And awesome. that's how life is. You just have to keep pushing and looking forward. And, and even if she said no, Right, I'll still publish my book. You see what I mean? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I'm I'm very glad um, she. Did. What made you decide? Because um, so one of the books that um I want to read, and we um have books that we're constantly reading, but um one of the books that I want to read is The Third Door, and it's the concept of 
you know, if you're going to get anywhere, if you're going to be um, doing great things with your life or in general, you know, some people are going to follow. Um, so it, it's kind of like if you're trying to get into a club, a lot of people will wait in line trying to get into a club. You'll line up and you may be there for two, three hours. You may get in, you may not, but you're there with the regular people, <laughs> right? So that's one way of trying to get in. Another way is as a VIP, right? Someone, know, you know, the owner of the club, someone um, thinks maybe, um, you know, you're cute, whatever it is, you're cute. So you get to skip the line or whatever. But the point is there's a second door that's sort of VIP for very special, important people. And then there's a third door where you don't know anyone, um, you know, but it's the door where you work you know, you walk around, you skip the line, you don't know anyone and you go through the back kitchen, you know, or you climb through the window, <laughs> you know, just the, 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 the randomness of you still trying to get in, but now it's going to take some sort of creative energy. And the concept is that a lot of times people who've had massive success, you know, they're general people who for the most part are going to wait in line, you know, and that's what 90% of people are doing to access to do whatever they do. Sometimes they eventually just run out of time. The club closes and you can't get in. And if you just happen to not be born into influence, be of wealth or connected to people in power, you know, you may not have access to the second door, but everyone can be creative. Everyone can shoot up an email to Annette Rippert and say, you know, will you write my book and just see, you know, if she's going to say yes or no. To me, that's an example of the third door because Number one, you didn't know her. Um, most people have said, I'm not going to randomly email someone I don't know to write something. So how did you decide, how did you get over that? Because that in and of itself to me would present some sort of fear or roadblock. Yeah. Um, so how did you decide to push through? And for people who don't know at Alexandra, I would think Annette is probably like an equivalent of maybe, you know, something like trying to write to like an executive at Apple, like a Steve Jobs or someone within the executive ranks, right? Yeah. Right. while you're just, uh, um, you know, someone that, you know, either works there, but is unknown to them. So how did you push through and decide, I'm just going to um, ask her and we'll see what she says. Yeah, okay. I asked, before Annette, I asked Julie Sweet. Julie Sweet is the CEO of Accenture. <laughs> wow. So... I reached out so to you just told me, so your friend was right. You've never had fear. This is what you do. You're like, I just shoot emails off. Who cares? <laughs> when the book was published and I announced it on LinkedIn, that day I got an invite from Julie Sweets to join my network. <laughs> wow. I, I don't know why she didn't respond. She was busy. But she definitely has put the dot together that this was that random email, okay? And yeah. she's gone ahead and she's published her book. Well, um, yeah. I don't know. But I would say I've, awesome. not, uh, I've never been the one to wait in line. I didn't wait in line in college for, my, for that one computer. I had to figure out how to, I'm like, there's more to this stuff, right? So yeah. I, I'm never going to wait. I don't believe in VIP status, um, but I know that I'm going to get what I want. Mm. Sure. Yeah, I'm going to get what, what, whatever I take um, in a good sense of the word. I'm just, yeah. 
I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it and um I'm gonna get what I want. That's okay. great. That's great. So, well I love it. Go I ahead. Wanna, so the last question I have, I don't know mm-hmm. if you have any more, but uh, I know that you are an identical twin. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> can you um, put the volume on your mic up? It seems to be low. I don't know if it's um, your mic that's um, moving. But go okay. ahead. But, you know, I know you're an identical twin, so I wonder, um, you know, what is your soulmate, your <laughs> your identical your identical uh, twin sister is, uh, you know, saying and doing um, and thinking about your, your book writing and, and your success. Are you guys also identical in, in personality too? Spirit. I, I don't know. A lot of people say we have similarities, so you'll be the judge of that. But she's currently doing her PhD uh, in business. She, she read petroleum engineering while I was in computer engineering. Um, she's doing, uh, but she's an entrepreneur. She never worked for anyone, so she does her own business. So she's currently doing her PhD in University of Aberdeen in the UK. And um, yeah, she's super excited about my book. I mentioned her name a couple of times as someone that, um, how, how I overcome fears as well. Talked about having a body that you can always talk to. So she just being part of my life, I guess, made a few things easier because there's someone that I can say, anything and everything to uh, and not feel any form of condemnation. Um, so yeah, she's been a great source of support. Right now, the book is number one bestseller in the UK. And that's definitely her. She's the one calling it and doing it, just making sure she gets Wait, the book. Wait, the book is the number one bestseller in the UK. In the UK right now, I was just checking the charts. Um, yeah. That- Amazing. Yeah. So she's talking to a lot of promoters, her friends, the university, everyone like that. So yeah, it's great to always have at least one person. And she's been a great part of my life. Oh, that's great. That's great. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, um, this is um it's been great. I, I think um, you know, we talk about someday you know, on some days today about overcoming fear and not letting anything hold you back. And sometimes, you know, it's a lot of times it's within the context of maybe entrepreneurship, travel, just do you. And sometimes it's difficult to um, sort of apply it to just day-to-day life. And, And I think what you've done and shown is that you can still continue to push and break through boundaries and, um, you know, access your goals through the, the third door or, you know, just live boldly just by doing what is in your heart, you know, and you could still choose the traditional route, you know, you're going to work within corporate America um, and do what you do, but you're still living boldly in many ways. So I think you're really just a great testament to um, not having to necessarily um, turn your life upside down (laughs) to live boldly. There's so many ways that you can do it. And I think this was a, an amazing example of that. So I've been very inspired by your story. Thank and, you so much for yeah, coming on. And if you ever um, want to go um, private again or your own business, um, you have some ideas about doing work in Nigeria, please look us up again. I'm interested. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. I'll, I'll reach out. 
Yes. So once again, the name of the book is Out of Africa and Into the Cloud. Out of Africa Into the Cloud. Girls Can Code too. Girls Can Code too. Absolutely. So look it up. Um, We'll put a picture of the book up for everybody to go and purchase the book. And it's on Amazon, yes? Yes, it is. Yeah, it's on everywhere. So, yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And um, have a great rest of the day. Oh, we didn't do Oh, yeah, where can people, hold on, where can people um, find you if they're looking outside of getting the book? Like your social media and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm sure you're going to put it up, but I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Instagram. Um, I love to connect with you. You can send me an email. I always like to hear from my readers. Um, contact at ecai.guru. So you can always reach me. I'm excited to, to speak with you. Yes. All That's right. amazing. Thank you, Dr. Issy. Yes. Are we going to do our tagline? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so um, before we do our tagline, we want to uh, <laughs> um, prepare you. Um, there is some colorful language, but... Uh, Well, thank you once again, everyone, for listening to Sunday is Today, where we invite you to live your life like it's a fucking vacation. Yeah, yeah, do it. (laughs) 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 All right. (laughs) Well, thanks, Issy. Have a good one. You enjoyed it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.